On today's episode of Christianity Still Makes Sense, we're going to take a deep dive together as I'll have Bobby unpack his moral argument from guilt that he developed for his doctoral work at the University of Birmingham in England. It was the late R.C. Sproul who used to say, every time I hear an atheist say he doesn't believe in God, I stop him dead in his tracks and ask, what do you do with your guilt? And that's a great question. What do you do with your guilt? And that's because it is a universal problem that we all must address regardless of our worldview. On today's episode, we'll discuss a certain type of guilt, namely moral guilt, and taking Sproul's question to the atheist, we will ask which worldview can better account for guilt, atheism or theism? And that's exactly what Bobby set out to address in his research, and I'm excited for you to ponder it. Welcome to the show that loves doubters here on Christianity Still Makes Sense. We are addressing the questions that can often deconstruct our Christian faith with near apostate and now pastor and apologist. Dr. Bobby Conway. I'm your host, Tim Hall. Well, Bobby, before we begin, why don't you tell us a little bit about the moral argument in, in general here? Sure. Of the various arguments for God's existence that have been developed, the moral argument is the most recent among them. Uh, in the modern era, it came about in its formulation through Immanuel Kant, and then there were others subsequent to him that began to develop their own version of the moral argument. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity in the first few chapters, it was his work that helped popularize the moral argument. Now, moral arguments, they tend to argue from a particular moral feature like the moral law, shame, or conscience to God's existence. So they consider shame, conscience, the moral law, and they begin to grapple with that and they argue to God's existence. The moral feature that I showcase in my moral argument is guilt. And I talk about the fact of one's guilt uh, following a moral trespass. So when we commit a moral wrong, we are guilty. But that doesn't mean uh, we always have feelings of guilt accompanied with it. Nevertheless, we're still guilty. Okay, well, well, let's get right to it. Now, I know that you've developed what you call a, a chain argument, where you can arg- right. argue abductively in the first two premises from universal objective moral guilt feelings before concluding that universal objective moral guilt exists. So then you make a shift where you form a chain argument moving from abductive to deductive argumentation. Perhaps explain what you mean by abductive and deductive, and then share the structure of your argument in a syllogistic fashion. Does that sound good? Sure. An abductive argument argues to the best possible explanation, Okay. whereas a deductive argument is bolder. If the premises are true, then it necessarily follows that the conclusion is true. So we're talking, you're arguing for, you know, airtight conclusion where the other is the best possible explanation. Yeah. Uh, what I want to do when I'm talking with an atheist is say, hey, we both got this moral feature called guilt. Which of our worldviews best explains it? Atheism? or theism. Now, I'm not even getting to Christianity at this stage, right? I'm just going to argue philosophically from moral guilt to a theistic God that is a 
monotheistic version of God. Mm. I'll get to which monotheistic version of God best accounts for our guilt later. But right now I'm just concerned with talking to an atheist in a abductive fashion, which, which worldview best accounts for our guilt. And so my moral argument goes like this, and this is where our listeners need to put their thinking caps on because I'm speaking with an argument formation, a syllogism, right? So my argument goes like this. Uh, premise one, if universal objective moral guilt feelings exist, then the best explanation is that universal objective moral guilt exists. Premise two, universal objective moral guilt feelings exist. Premise three, therefore, the best explanation is that universal objective moral guilt exists. So therefore, what did I do there? The first two premises followed by a conclusion that was all abductive. Now I'm going to shift to a deductive. If universal objective moral guilt exists, then there is a personal, all-knowing moral lawgiver who is good and fit to hold us accountable. Well, premise five, universal objective moral guilt exists. Conclusion. There is a personal, all-knowing moral lawgiver who is good and fit to hold us accountable. Okay, so you've laid out the argument. Now I think it's time to unpack it. So let's go to the yeah. first premise, which again, I'll just restate it. If universal objective moral guilt feelings exist, then the best explanation is that universal objective moral guilt exists. So are there some terms that we need to unpack here? There is. First, the word universal. This suggests that there are moral guilt feelings that are both universally ubiquitous and timeless. Okay. And what I mean by that is that the experience of our guilt feelings, uh, it's universal, right? It's not culturally bound and it's not time bound. We've experienced guilt throughout time and throughout various cultures. So there is also a large agreement uh, amongst cultures uh, of what guilt is. Now, to account for these moral similarities, we can consider uh, C.S. Lewis, right? In his appendix to the abolition of man, he shares how cross-culturally there's a lot of similarity. Now, the differences doesn't mean that we don't have similarity as well. And if we can show that there is similarity, then we can start moving toward some type of objective moral morality. Okay, so uh, l let's talk a little bit more about the, the third, the, the guilt feelings. Define the guilt feelings. Does, how does that distinguish between a person's just kind of feeling uh, guilt and a person's objective guilt for actually violating a moral law? Talk to us a little bit about that. Okay, yeah. Um, I would say, Tim, um, you know, even backing up for just a second, um, I would want to say um, that objective moral guilt suggests that moral truths are violated, uh, but they hold regardless of a person believing it or not. So if Hitler thought um, it was right for the Holocaust, uh, objective morality would say it was wrong regardless of what he felt. Okay. Um, and guilt feelings can be distinguished from a person's feeling guilt and actually being guilty. A person can feel guilty and not be objectively guilty, or they can be guilty and not feel guilty. So we're looking for the correspondence. Like if I feel guilty for stealing a car, then I should be able to look out there and see, oh, I stole a car. Now, 
uh, I would say, how might an atheist reply to these statements? It depends on the type of atheist that you're dealing with. So you'll okay. get some who are moral realists or moral anti-realists. And that's just to say that some believe that morality uh, really does exist, that, that it's objective, and others would say that morality uh, doesn't exist. So you could feel guilty, but you're not really guilty. Okay. So, Bobby, you list four objections to the moral anti-realist, which you just explained, uh, would have against this kind of argument so far. Will you walk us through those objections? And by the way, I just love how you're dealing with, you're kind of preempting the possible objections for some of this. So go ahead and lay these out for us. Sure. So one objection that somebody could make is they, they might say something like, guilt cannot be objected because moral truths uh, clash. These claims clash, so to speak. And we can concede the, that evidence exists that reveals that cultures are morally nuanced. But we should quickly add that existing evidence for some moral relativity does not mean there's no such thing as any moral objectivity. So there might be that clash, but it doesn't mean that there's not anything to be objective. We agree in certain areas. Just as it would be extreme to claim there is universal moral alignment regarding all morality, it would also be equally extreme to contend that there is no alignment regarding any morality, right? Mm. Another objection somebody might make is something like this. Morality is simply a matter of one's taste. But the problem with this is the person who wants to make this claim uh, is basically going to end up with no objectivity whatsoever. There's no way to ground right or wrong. You and your own taste set the rules. And this is problematic. Uh, especially when morals clash. What if one has a taste for murder? Or what if one has a taste for pedophilia? If it's about taste only and not objectivity, who's to say his taste is wrong? If it's wrong, right, then it's objective and objectively wrong. Third, I would say uh, that, that people could bring up as an object, uh, bring up as an objection, Tim, 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 <laughs> hey, Tim, uh, a third objection people could bring up would be that guilt cannot be objective since morality is a human construct. Mm. So this is kind of like a social contract theory. But the problems of this are a lot. Uh, contracts change. People break agreements. What happens when cultures do clash? Another objection that people might bring up is those who feel guilty are simply delusional since there is no such thing as objective moral guilt. Now, uh, I think we need to ask, is it not more obviously true that some things are obviously wrong, right? Like, uh, wouldn't it be obviously wrong if somebody decided to dissect their science teacher for fun? <laughs> like, yes. it seems more obviously true that that is wrong than to say uh, you can make a claim that there's no such thing as objective right and wrong. So those are a few thoughts that I'd add there, Tim. Well, well, let me just say to our audience real quickly that there is a lot here, no doubt. You're, you're taking seven years of research and putting it into a 25-minute conversation. So I would love to invite our audience to, to leave a comment, leave some questions down in the chat. If you're listening to this on the radio or in our, 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 our audio-only podcast, head on over to our YouTube channel, leave a comment or question. And, and we realize, again, that people might be thinking, wow, 
I feel like I'm drinking from a fire hose here and, and there's a lot of important stuff. So your second premise, let's move to the second premise here, that universal objective moral guilt feelings exist. What, what's an objection that somebody might have to this? Some people will point out that psychopaths are proof that universal objective moral guilt feelings exist. Hmm. I don't think it carries a lot of weight. For example, Tim, I'm colorblind. Uh, does that mean that objective color uh, does not exist? No. And are, are people universally uh, not colorblind? Of course. Uh, so you don't deny objective color on account of, uh, you know, those who are impaired. So there are psychopaths, but we think about, let, let's think about our friend, David Wood, who's a psychopath. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he doesn't feel guilt, uh, but he recognizes right and wrong. And so you can recognize moral right and wrong, even if you don't feel it, you'll be helped if you feel it because it'll be alerting you better, but it doesn't mean you can't perform right because you're a psychopath. So I would say after I dismiss these type of objections, Tim, Mm -hmm. what I then do is I arrive at my first conclusion in the chain argument And I then come to premise three and say, therefore, the best explanation is that universal objective moral guilt exists. So I try to, you know, send away the objections that universal objective guilt exists. And we shared some of those objections very briefly. And then I make the claim that universal objective moral guilt exists. And at that point, I'm ready to move to the deductive portion of my chain argument in premise four to six where I begin to say that the best explanation of our universal objective guilt feelings is that there is universal objective guilt. And I begin to talk about a certain type of God that exists. Well, yeah, okay, so let, let's move to this next section, and I'll just remind our audience: this the next section begins with if you know if universal more or objective moral guilt exists, then there is a personal all-knowing moral lawgiver who is good and fit to hold us accountable. So what objections might the atheistic moral realist, as you talked about before, um, make for this so that we know that they believe in objective morality, but they don't credit God. So what would they say? Yeah. And again, objective morality means something is right or wrong, independent of how even what we think about it, but right how we feel about it. Um, There's a couple primary objections. The first objection to the fact that there is a personal God is the atheistic moral Platonist objection. Now, this might sound like a mouthful, and and it is a mouthful, I get that. But this view, atheistic moral Platonism, claims morals are objective like math as moral obligations are self-evident to people. Uh, The atheistic moral Platonist Um, They want to say that there is such a thing as moral values that exist uh, in in another realm. But the problem is, Tim, it cannot tell us why we should be morally obligated Mm. to follow these values. So you're an atheist and you want to ground morality in an objective realm, in a platonic realm, hearkening back to Plato, right? Uh, And there are these moral virtues out there. Why should we be morally obligated to obey these, even if they do exist? So it can say that, hey, there are these, you know, moral features that exist out there. Uh, But that doesn't tell us why we're obligated. So 
Secondly, I'd say there's a problem with atheistic moral Platonism. It remains in conflict with natural selection that it holds to. So the priority for naturalism, it's not right living, but survival. So what explanation can the moral phenomenon of guilt after we think about, you know, atheistic moral Platonism, it can't really hold. I think a particular type of God, Tim, namely a God who possesses five attributes. He's personal, all-knowing, a moral lawgiver who's good, who's good and fit to hold us accountable. Now, we begin with the first attribute of the first type of God being described. And my first attribute is this, that God is personal. Uh, in order to be universally offended by those in the past and the present, uh, the offended must be a personal agent. A person cannot offend a non-person, like an yeah. abstract object, like atheistic moral Platonism. Yeah. The offense requires personhood. You're not going to be offended uh, if you're not, you know, a person. You're going to take no offense unless you're a person. An right. atheistic moral object's not going to be offended. So moral guilt um, you know, is not making good on one's obligation, like a check engine light's meant to alert us. It's telling us we've offended the one whom we're morally obligated to. Whew. Okay, so we're all trying to keep up here. Like, again, if people got questions, they can leave them in the comments, but let's move on a little bit. So I think we've addressed the first objection. What's the second objection to your premise that God is a personal, that a personal God exists? Well, Eric Wheelingberg's the atheist who is an atheistic moral Platonist, mm -hmm. and uh, he refers to the anonymous source objection. And for him, he wants to say that if a personal God exists, why doesn't he make his commands more obvious to us that he expects mm -hmm. us to obey? And he likens it to somebody receiving a letter from somebody that's an anonymous source and they impose obligations on us. Why should we be obligated to obey this anonymous source? And given Willingberg's position, I find his objection ironic, right? Because remember, he believes that uh, you can ground morality in the realm of Platonism, that there are these atheistic, uh, or that there are these moral, free-floating, ontological, abstract ideas that exist these values that we're to conform to. Well, how would those values make themselves known to us? It seems that those are far more anonymous than, than God. Uh, more uh, People don't just walk into accidentally uh, moral Platonism, mm -hmm. but they don't have a problem recognizing that there's a personal God. Right, so it's almost like they, they, grant, they grant something there, but then they kind of, Take this weird yeah, little left exactly. <laughs> okay, so you know, we've talked about kind of the idea that God is personal, and you've argued for that. You, you've hit some objections to that, but you give four other attributes that you identify. Can you discuss those as we be begin to wrap this up? So there's a light at the end of the tunnel here, folks. Yeah, uh, and, and actually, you know, it's funny. We're trying to break this down here, um, but we're not even getting into like the Nietzsche and the Freud and the Darwin stuff that right, I studied right. that is actually really helpful to understanding people and the way they think. Totally. Um, but the second attribute is premise of uh, premise four is that God's all knowing. So mm -hmm. a person cannot be offended unless he knows about the offense. Right. 
And to be universally offended, the offended must be all-knowing to account for every human offense. <laughs> so that's pretty cool, right? Um, a third attribute would be that God is a moral lawgiver. It's his laws that are broken. He's the one we are accountable accountable to ultimately. He gives us his commands through our conscience, which helps us to discern right and wrong, whose commands become our moral obligations. And in the event that we do not make good on our moral obligations, we are rendered guilty. Another attribute that we can draw would be the fact that God is good. Our guilt tells us that God cares about morals. That's because he is good. Why is it that we only feel guilt when we do bad? If God was evil, Tim, it seems he'd want us to feel guilt when we do good, but that's not the case, right? Uh, we feel guilty when we do bad. Mm. A fifth attribute uh, that I would point out is that God is fit to hold us accountable. Given the fact that he is personal, all-knowing, good, and a moral lawgiver, he is able to hold us accountable. Now, at this point, I've argued from a philosophical place uh, of our guilt to a theistic version of God as the best explanation and to the fact that God exists. But it's not clear how at this stage God would hold us accountable. Uh, so having argued by implication uh, that, you know, this type of God exists, we're still kind of left with the problem of our guilt and what do we do with it? Mm. Well, okay, so maybe we can try to kind of start landing the plane here. So what, what are some thoughts as we kind of wrap up and, and as you address that last piece that you just kind of brought up? So let, let's begin to wrap this, this, this thing up. Sure. So what, what I want people to understand, Tim, is we begin by saying to the atheists, we both have this feature called guilt that we got to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about what best explains our moral guilt. And the atheist can fall into one of two categories. He can be a moral realist or he can be a non-moral realist. That is to say, he can believe there's such a thing as objective morality or he can deny that objective morality exists. If he denies that objective morality exists, uh, then he's going to say things like, you know, morality, you know, you're delusional to believe in it. Uh, morality is subjective. Different cultures have it. It's relativistic. It's like a social contract, but it's not real. If this person's going to hold to objective morality, then they're, they're going to have to ground it to prove it. And they really only got one option, and that's to ground it in the realm of Platonism. And we said that doesn't make sense because these free-floating abstract virtues don't care about sending us a message. They're non-personal. So what kind of God would it take to reveal to us our guilt? And we said, well, it seems like our guilt shows that God's personal. Like when we do wrong, we feel like we've offended someone. But if we all feel this, it would require a universal uh, uh, ability uh, and an omniscient God. And so what's amazing is, is this moral lawgiver who's good, uh, when you think about his attributes, it corresponds to the Christian God. The God of Christianity is personal. He's good. He's a moral lawgiver. He's fit to hold us accountable. Uh, he's all knowing, but what does the God of Christianity do about our guilt? He comes down in the person of Jesus to die on a cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven. So this is a round trip argument. We argue philosophically from guilt to God and then apologetically from God down to guilt in the incarnation to deal with our guilt. So we have a moral gap 
between God and ourselves as a result of our guilt. But Jesus on the cross wedges the gap, closes the gap, dying for us for our sins. This is a picture, I think, that deals with our guilt better than any worldview option on offer. Well, again, there is a lot more that could be said, a lot more you have penned on this topic. So I think we'll kind of leave it there for now. But I I would invite our audience that if you are enjoying this uh, episode, that you subscribe to our YouTube channel. Again, like I mentioned earlier, if you're listening on the radio, thank you so much for checking it out. If you're listening on our audio-only podcast, both of those audiences, we would love to have you come over to our YouTube channel and subscribe. Give us a thumbs up. Click the notification bell. Leave us a comment at the bottom of this video. And if you have somebody that maybe would want to do a response video to some of what Bobby said, we we would love to uh, know that as well. You can leave that in the comments and maybe in a future episode, we will respond to that. We have lots of other content. Bobby's putting out multiple shorts a week. We have the Making Sense of Scripture that comes out on Wednesday afternoons on our YouTube channel. It's the only place that you can find that. And we also do periodic live Q&As. And with that, we will meet you next time on the episode of Christianity Still Makes Sense. Thank you for checking out this episode of Christianity Still Makes Sense. This show is just one of the many resources available to those who are doubting their Christian faith. You can also find others at ChristianityStillMakesSense.com. This is a listener-supported show, and your gift of any amount helps shows like this continue. Click on the donate link on our website. Also, catch Bobby on Pastor's Perspective, where he answers your questions. Finally, if you're watching on YouTube, be sure to click subscribe and check out our other videos on the channel. This show is sponsored by K-Wave and Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa.